0: From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Antonio Zadra is full professor in the department of psychology at Université de Montréal, where he is director of the Dream Laboratory. Antonio Zadra is also a researcher at the Center for Advanced Research in Sleep Medicine and author of the recently published When Brains Dream. For much of his adult life, Antonio Zadra has been interested in all kinds of questions about dreams, from why our memories for dreams are so fragile, to how dreams relate to waking life, whether dreams have a function he is also interested by specific kinds of dreams and has conducted numerous studies on lucid dreams nightmares and recurrent dreams okay so welcome everyone my name is Diaz. Uh, i'm the founder and co-director of building 21 uh, i'm joined by anita who's the other co-director of building 21 and by Antonio Zadra. Antonio Zadra is a full professor in the Department of Psychology at the University Montréal. He's also the director of the Dream Lab. Is, is that how you call it, Antonio?
1: Yeah, you can call it the Dream Lab, the Z Lab, uh, anything but Wakefulness Lab. <laughs> All right.
0: <laughs> so, uh, uh, Antonio just came up with, uh, co-wrote this really fascinating book called uh, When Brains Dream, uh, where... Uh, he and his co-author are, are having this sort of a summary, summary of many of the research, the most recent research on, on dreams. And they also try to, they try to uh, construct this new theory on how, you know, how the, all of these uh, theories come together to explain uh, sleep, sleep research. So there are many things we can discuss, Antonio, uh, but my first question to you is actually something, this great line from you, your book... Uh, Where where you say uh, in a real sense we are what we sleep?
1: Uh, Well, we are. Um, You know, sleep was often viewed as a really passive state or something very similar to death. Uh, But now we know that there's all these wonderful processes that occur while we sleep. And there are physiological processes related to hormones and related to um, uh, your growth and so on, uh, insulin release, things of that nature, but a lot of things to do with the mind. So how we construct our sense of selves, how we take recent emotional experiences we've been through and tie them into our past. And so much of how we view ourselves, how we view the world around us, and how our brain goes about predicting what awaits um, ahead of us uh, is actually worked through, at least in part, while we sleep.
0: And I think that's sort of the question that always comes to mind uh, when we speak, well, hasn't happened to me that often but when we speak speak with a sleep researcher a dreams researcher is why a dream researcher instead of or uh, instead of a sleep researcher which are I believe very different things
1: Oh there there are very different things and so my uh, although I'm interested by sleep, my mm-hmm. original, really fascination was not with sleep per se but with dreams Um, particularly exceptionally vivid dreams such as nightmares or what are known as lucid dreams dreams in which you can become aware that you're dreaming and then try to use this awareness to manipulate the content of one's dreams so it was more these subjective experiences so dreams as an altered state of consciousness that interested me much more than sleep per se.
0: I want to go into consciousness. Well, let's go into consciousness right now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As long as we don't go into unconsciousness, then I think we'll be fine.
0: So are dreams our first foray into consciousness? Is that sort of the first inkling of the beginning of consciousness among human beings? Um,
1: That's a very good question, Um, and I I don't know. I don't think anyone knows. Um, But when we look at the content of dreams in children as they develop, um, we see that dreams sort of evolve over time in terms of complexity when other characters appear, when we start attributing emotions to other dream characters. And so I think that just like waking cognitive capacities and consciousness Uh, develops as we grow older the same thing with dreams so dreams sort of develop in parallel so i think it's a it's a form of consciousness but that is not above and beyond what we experience uh, while we are awake
0: we know that every living thing well at least every animal uh, sleeps right
1: yes that's correct
0: do they all dream
1: i would doubt so Um, I think that to support, the the mechanisms that support sleep, even rudimentary forms of sleep, are relatively simple. Um, The cortical processes required for waking consciousness, for self-awareness, and we believe for dreaming, are considerably more complex. So it is um, more, I think, likely that maybe all mammals are at least capable of something that resembles human dreaming. Uh, and, and it really depends on what their level of waking consciousness is. And so if you ask me, what is, you know, what is a bat dream about? What does a cat dream about? Uh, or a newborn, for that matter. Uh, I would probably tell you, well, tell me what their waking state of consciousness is like. And their dreams are probably something analogous to that.
0: Physiologically, they all show signs of REM sleep, for example, right?
1: Sure, they all show signs of uh, REM sleep, so um, all mammals do. But the question is, is their REM sleep accompanied by these virtual worlds that their brains are creating uh, with these different scenarios and narrative structures? And that we can't really be sure of. Uh, Just like you can look at the brain of a mammal while it is awake but then if you ask well what's its consciousness like is it is it kind is it grateful that i fed it is it enjoying the music well grateful enjoyment sad those are really human qualities that we can project onto other animals and so we can do the same thing with dreams if we want but to assume that they experience dreams as we do we who have a particular form of language who are used to navigating in similes and metaphors and they get uh, incorporated into our dreams as well it's not clear this kind of symbolic representation necessarily takes place uh, in a mouse or a rat for instance.
0: Okay so I want to pick up on this but first I think uh, it'd be interesting for our our listeners if you could uh, summarize what next up is.
1: Uh, next up is a model that Bob Stickgold, um, a longtime friend and co author of mine, who's a prof of psychiatry at Harvard University, have sort of pulled together to try to come with a more comprehensive model of the biological or adaptive function of dreaming. And so it tries to pull together what we know about the different roles that sleep plays in different forms of memory consolidation. It tries to pull together what we know about the neurophysiology of the brain in different phases of sleep. It looks at how dreams vary across different sleep stages. So we can have different forms of dream imagery as you're falling asleep, in light sleep, in in deeper phases of sleep, in REM sleep. And so it's to bring these different fields of knowledge that we have about dreams uh, together in a more unified uh, perspective, uh, uh, touching about uh, maybe why dreaming evolved in our ancestors and what role it may play in our adaptation and well-being.
0: But the most the most fascinating part of sleep for most people is REM sleep. And yes, and in your book you you explain why sort of sort of evolution evolutionary need for REM sleep what it does actually for, for both the individual and the collective at the same time. Yeah, so REM sleep
1: executes uh, many functions, uh, including some related to emotional processing, um, uh, emotional regulation, and, but it is also the stage of sleep where we experience our most vivid forms of dreams. Um, and so emotionally salient dreams, uh, vivid dreams, so it's where the brain is doing dream-wise its best work, if you want. It's also the, the phase of sleep where the dreams tend to get most bizarre, unusual, uh, that we're more likely to recall uh, upon awakening. And it is a perplexing phase of sleep because when you look at brain waves of someone who's in REM sleep, their brain looks remarkably like a brain of someone who is awake. But they are asleep. Not only are they asleep, But they are actively paralyzed. All the major muscle groups of the body in REM sleep are paralyzed. And if it wasn't for this paralysis, people would act out the content of their dreams. And so you have this brain activity looks like someone is awake, but the person is paralyzed. And then on top of all this, you have their eyes, which keep darting back and forth under their closed eyelids, hence the term uh, rapid eye movement, sleep. So it's a particular phase of sleep, uh, really unique and uh, closely tied to dreams, but uh, many of uh, sleep's functions as well.
0: But in in the book, you make it clear that the bizarreness, if I may say so, of REM sleep is actually very useful. The brain is actually trying the most unusual Well, it's trying to explore the most unusual path.
1: Yes, it's looking for weak associations to emotionally salient events we've experienced, to our ongoing concerns. So it's a form, if you want, dreams of divergent thinking. It's novel. It's creative. It's thinking outside of the box. And so it's taking things that we've seen, thought about, experienced during the day, and then looking, looking through our semantic networks, our m- different memories that we have, but things that are tangentially related to it. So it's very different from more logical, focused form of thinking. It's actually the very opposite. And we think that the brain takes this information, explores these associations, looks at where these experiences might fit in based on similar things we've experienced in the past, and it constructs these narratives out of these experiences, which is what we call dreams that we later may or may not remember.
0: And it seems like daydreaming, or if I m- if I remember this well, the default mod- mode network, is actually seems to have a, a similar signature to REM sleep. Yes, when we look at
1: different uh, networks within the brain that are activated in REM sleep. Um, one well-studied network known as the default mode network uh, which tends to be activated when you're doing nothing really when you're just sitting down and letting your mind wander so when you're doing this sort of um, non-directional divergent form of thinking and or also known as daydreaming, it's the same brain structures that become activated in REM sleep. And so REM sleep in a a very real sense is sort Mm -hmm. of like an intensified form of mind wandering or daydreaming where your mind skips from one idea to another and they're all associated but only loosely so it's a bit like these party conversations that you can have uh, where you're gathered with five six friends and after about 10 minutes that you're talking together one person will say how did we get to talking about this But if someone is recording, you could see that, oh, well, Bob said this, and then Julianne responded with this, and that made me think of that. So you can actually see how we went from point A to point B to point C, and now we're on something very different than what we started from. And Dreams is a bit similar in the way that it constructs these narratives.
0: Dreams research is, what, about 100 years old? Freud, probably? A bit before Freud? In your book, you're clear that... He, he picked up a lot of his ideas from other people, but it's about a, a century old.
1: Yeah, it depends what we mean by the study of dreams. We're looking at trying to document what is the content of people's dreams, what themes come up, maybe what they mean. Uh, that's probably a few thousand years old. If we're looking more at, you know, empirical way or mm-hmm, a, mm-hmm. what we would call now a scientific way of trying to describe dreams, yeah, I'd say it's about uh, maybe 150 years. So really uh, short.
0: So do we know in in, in a society where it seems that our ability to daydream is sort of filled by other stuff most of the day? Does that have an impact, first of all, on our ability to be creative? And second of all, does does it have an impact on on actual sleep and dreams? Um, I
1: think, but there's not necessarily... Uh, solid evidence that it does interfere with creativity because I think that the brain needs this downtime that we've always had to sort of again to daydream and to sort of tag what have I seen or done today that is important that maybe the brain needs to process in our sleep we also know that the brain uses the period of time before you fall asleep that transition to sort of replay what is important in what we learned today Uh, So that it tags it for processing during different stages of sleep to the extent now that people don't give themselves this downtime, neither during the day people now, uh, you know, if they go eat at a restaurant or they're having lunch, they're usually not just having lunch and letting their mind wander. They're on their iPhone, you know, or they're um, engaging in, in, on social media. And so their attention is always used up. So your brain, you're sort of depriving your brain of this moment, which is important for uh, downtime, so that your brain can sort of reflect on what you've experienced um, during the day, and again, to try to make sense of it. So we have a line that, you know, in the book where we say, it appears that for every two hours we are awake the brain needs one hour to shut down and sleep to detach itself from the external environment and to focus on internal processes to figure out what it all means so for every two hours you're awake your brain needs one hour of sleep to figure out what all of this means what is important where does it fit in and it's all processes that we take for granted uh, but that are vitally important to our physical and psychological well-being.
0: Wow, well, this is so fascinating, Anita Viola. I forgot to say, um, <laughs> we're also we're also joined by Viola. Uh, Viola is a current uh, Building Twenty-One fellow. Uh, also, Darius is, is, is here in the background, uh, looking, uh, listening attentively. And. Ezel. 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 Alright, so welcome to <laughs> who's uh, <laughs> one of Viola's friends and a McGill student yes. I, I assume correctly <laughs> Viola Anita uh, I'm sure you guys have
2: questions too I have one quick one My question is whether or not we understand the physical things that the brain is also correcting for in sleep at the same time as dream and so is there some at the same time that it's regulating hormones or doing some kind of waste cleaning, various no. bodily systems. Does that happen separate from dreams, during dreams? Is, is there any correlation between the two?
1: There's there's a lot. It's, it's a very good question. Now, there are many different kinds of functions that are executed while we sleep and across different stages of sleep. The question is, to what extent are these functions tied into dreams or require dreaming? So what is dreaming? Dreaming is is a unique state in which the brain is creating these virtual worlds that we tend to experience from a first-person perspective with emotions, with bizarreness, with interactions, with these shifting narratives. So the question becomes, does these sleep-related functions require this subjective experience? And so I think things like for hormonal regulation, uh, not at all. It just does it, uh, like it does many things while you are awake. Uh, regulates your appetite and through uh, hormones and ghrelin and other such things. Um, Where I think dreams comes in is, again, is in really trying to make sense of the world we live in and to help us better prepare ourselves for the future. And for the brain to do that, it needs to figure out what in these, you know, 16 hours that you spent awake is important. It's an incredible amount of data that we are exposed to constantly. So what in the relationships we had, what we have learned in how we have felt, um, what in this is important, How, how does it fit into things that I've lived and learned in the past, and is this useful moving forth? And so we think that dreams... Uh, are important for these kinds of functions. And we also know that um, things can go wrong in these processes, so you can see that in post-traumatic stress disorder related nightmares where the brain is no longer capable of taking emotionally salient events that you've experienced during the day and showing you these events dissociated from the emotions that usually accompany them, which typically takes place in our dreams. Um, so you can see also when these processes break down, they have negative consequences on people. Not only do they wake up feeling less refreshed, but they can be more anxious, more depressed, so their well-being suffers. And this seems to be intimately tied to these dream-related processes. Um, they can also be very helpful. So studies by uh, Ross Cartwright in Chicago. Uh, who passed away recently, who was known as the Queen of Dreams, Uh, she had studied women undergoing divorce, and she looked at women who were depressed, women who were not depressed, and how they adapted to these stressors, their ongoing divorce, over time. And one thing that she showed is that the women who actively dreamt of their ex-spouse in positive ways, in emotionally salient ways, who incorporated them in their dream narratives, we're the ones who a year later appear to show the most improvement or adaptation uh, to their ongoing circumstances. So there's many of these kinds of evidence that suggests that beyond whatever physiologically the brain is doing, uh, the things we experience in our dreams, how the brain goes about selecting our memories and how it weaves them into a dream narrative and how it tells stories about things we've Uh, encountered plays a role in how well we do or not as we move ahead with our lives.
2: Um, So I was here a little while ago when you came to talk uh, at B21 and you mentioned that being a a dream researcher compared to being a sleep researcher was kind of viewed with some skepticism uh, among a lot of scientists. I was wondering um, if you you know why that is, if there's any like, what are the biases against dream research? Mm
1: Sure. Well, there's many. So uh, first of all, many people rarely or never remember their dreams. And so they don't know what you're interested in. They're like, oh, okay. (laughs) They're like, what exactly? Second, uh, dreams are private, subjective experiences. And so, um, so it's sort of Unique in that way that you you never study dreams directly. What you study are dream reports, what people tell you. But I like to point out it's not very different from studying pain. You cannot see pain directly. you can only infer it, and that's why we ask people, is it a burning pain? Is it a shooting pain, a throbbing pain? Uh, and so, and for others, dreams or interest in dreams is intimately tied to these ancient questions about, What is the meaning of my dream? So it's like the whole dream dictionaries and so on, or Freudian dream interpretation. So I think there's many factors that work against dreams being taken seriously. Uh, Then for many, they think that dreams are just this random nonsense. It's just your brain going crazy and that there is, you know, no rhyme or reason to it and no interest in studying dreams. Um... And I would say that up until maybe two decades ago, um, there was a lot less interest in even sleep. We still aren't sure why we sleep, we know, but there's, over these past decades, really uh, an incredible body of work showing us the different functions that sleep seem to execute and how complex they are as a, fo- as a as a function of sleep stages and also when you study sleep well you have a lot of more concrete sleep related disorders like insomnia or narcolepsy things of that nature uh, with dreams other than maybe recurrent dreams or nightmares there's you know Uh, relatively little and even that is often viewed as something that you can't really treat or that will disappear on its own or that we shouldn't take seriously so um, I think that the science of dreams has often faced an uphill battle Uh, on the other hand over the last I'd say 5-10 years there's definitely been a renewed interest into the science of dreams and we see it from people in different fields being interested by the question of how and why we dream and so we can there are anthropologists philosophers people in neurosciences people in uh... ai uh... all interested in different facets of dreams and what we can learn uh, about them and maybe what role they play so i think that there's a renaissance and uh... recognition of the importance of dreams and what we stand to um, gain by studying them uh, empirically
0: there's there's a a notable uh, finding or study that showed acute sleep deprivation can have an antidepressant effect Mm. I just wonder what's your interpretation of that and how much does that have to do with sleep deprivation versus dream deprivation
1: Uh, that's an excellent question and so first of all you're right the we know that um, sleep it's not necessarily sleep deprivation but sleep restriction so it's not that we tell you don't sleep for 45 hours Mm -hmm. it's more you're only going to be sleeping five hours a night Um, and so restricting sleep uh, can have a positive effect yeah on uh, depressive symptoms we're not quite sure why that is to what extent dreams play a role, I think we know even uh, less about. Now, we got to think that the brain of someone who is clinically depressed uh, is not a normal brain in the sense that there are various kinds of imbalances in it. So we know there are imbalances in with respect to serotonin, for instance, which is why uh, some kind of medications like SSRIs, tend to work in some people. So because sleep is intimately tied in many neurophysiological processes, it could be the sleep restriction helps re-equilibrate some of these imbalances in the brain. Uh, so there's probably different mechanisms through which it works, um, but I don't think that dreams necessarily play a role in the beneficial effects that can be observed in some patients uh, who are uh, under the sleep, sleep restriction protocols. Uh, I was more curious about um, like the dreams that sometimes feel like they just came out of the left field, like you, it's not necessarily when you recall, not something that is related to the day you've had, but it's just kinda is just something that you had not thought about and kind of maybe disorients you the next day? Like, uh, what do we know about those kinds of dreams? All right. So dreams are, are, well, to me anyways, are fascinating for many reasons. But one reason that they generally have intrigued people is because of their unusual nature, right? Uh, no one would go, oh my gosh, you won't believe the dream I had last night. I was in my car, stuck on the twenty.
0: Right, like, no, that, that's like... I actually have sometimes <laughs> dreams like this, and I wake up in the morning, it's like, what's the point of sleeping? <laughs> uh,
1: so, but for you, it might be a metaphor that you you know, <laughs> that you have all these plans that you can't execute them, right? So you're stuck in traffic. Um, and so, um, to, to come back to your, um, your question here, uh, you, you made me deviate.
0: So the question was, uh, why do we have sometimes weird dreams that are not related to the day-to-day event?
1: So when we look at... Thank you. (laughs) When we look at the content of people's dreams, uh, one thing that is remarkable is that instances of what are known as episodic memories, so memories for events as they actually occurred during wakefulness are very rare in dreams. At best, we have little mini fragments but it's not the whole you know if you yesterday you were at a park with some friends playing frisbee or whatever your dream might have you know frisbee might have the park some of your friends but all the other details are different and so dreams don't show us events as they happened they tell stories about them and so it's very different and so when you're saying that the dream comes out of left field it is because you're your brain is exploring these really weak associations to things. It's, you know, you played Frisbee with your friends yesterday at the park. Where does that park fit into other parks that I've had? What kind of emotions have I had last times I was there? You know, Bob and Bridget were there as well. You like Bridget? You like Bob a little less. Where does this fit in in your, in your conception of relationships? and you know, how does this impact going forth? Um, you might have different associations to frisbee you know frisbee might make you know the the frisbee hovering might have a a semantic relation to pizza pizza why because you have these images you know when people are flinging the pizza across in the air so your brain i mean i'm just ad-libbing here but your brain might be exploring all of these things and so it weaves this story that'll bring in pizza And, you know, Bob that you're having a disagreement with, but this other person that you are enjoying or a a mixture of that. And then you're at a restaurant, but, you know, there's a tree in the middle of the restaurant, but it's actually taken from the park that you're in. And so it weaves all these things, and I think that the brain also looks at how do you react to the dream, and how does people and the dream itself react to you in terms of your thoughts, your emotions, and that there's a constant dynamic interplay between you and the dream world and that this is useful information for your brain you got to keep in mind that your brain creates two delightfully wonderful things when you are dreaming it creates you right so you actually see things you can hear things um so it's a multi-sensory experience but it also creates all the people and the scenery around you and even though your brain is doing this you have no idea how the characters in your dreams for instance will react to you or what they will say and i like to give the example that even in a lucid dream even in a dream in which you know that you are dreaming you might be able to make a dream character appear and then you can ask them a question who are you who am i uh, what should we know about this dream you know what's the most important thing i should pay attention to you can ask them whatever creative question you want but you have no idea how they're going to react, what they're going to say, what answer it might be profound, it might make no sense. But the answer is being created by your brain, right? As you are asking the question, your brain is here's the answer, but it's kept outside of your awareness. And so I think this is also a key in our understanding the function of dreams that the dream probably needs this information. What is your spontaneous reaction? to everything it is creating, but also how are your emotions and your thoughts feeding into these characters in these environments. And that's your conception of the world. And that's, your brain uses this to build its models about what you've experienced, how does it fit to your past, and most important, how does this help us better prepare ourselves for the future. And this all goes on online as you're dreaming. And leaves you, yes, with these feelings that it came out of the left field.
0: On the other hand, in your book, you have these very interesting lists of common dreams that we all have. So they're both, they can be both very bizarre, but they can also be something we all share, the dream of not being prepared for an exam, for example, right? Absolutely. How how does that fit into the great scheme of things? Mm -hmm. Like, on the, the one hand, it's extraordinarily personal. It's, as you said, my vision of... The world around me. On the other hand, is something I share with a with huge community and I think across cultures too. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so I think
1: it's not that different from the literature on storytelling. So there, there's a really a very finite number of overarching plots, right? Uh, the prodigal son, the good versus evil, you know, the great mother, you know, the... I mean there's all these overarching uh, plots and narrative structures. And I think dreams fall into that as well. There's some really, you mentioned the exam dream. So um, again, people, it'll vary from person to person, exactly what course are you failing? Why are you not ready? How old are you, you know, what's going on? Um, But be that as it may, when people have these examination dreams if they take the time to look at when are they occurring what is going through in their lives when they are having these dreams often many will notice that they tend to occur in periods of self-doubt and so maybe you have an important talk maybe you're looking forward to a challenging conversation you need to have with a loved one with a spouse with a family member Um, maybe you have an important evaluation going on at work or you're not sure if you're up to the task with an assignment that's been given to you. I mean, there's a whole myriad of situations where a good metaphor for that, when your brain is trying to figure out what this means, is you're not ready, right? And so you have these exam dreams. And so uh, in my case, I've often had these examination dreams and I realized, again, often when I had periods of doubt, legitimate or not. But in mine, I have a government official who comes into my office and says, Mr. Zadra, our records show that uh, you haven't completed you know, this math exam when you were in secondary four, <laughs> and you need to take it tomorrow morning. And if you don't pass it, well, all the studies since will be deleted. And I, and I complain, I go, well, that's crazy. You know, I mean, that... Sec 4 math, I, I think I can do it, but it's, it's, it's a long time ago, right? <laughs> and tomorrow morning. And so, uh, so that's my version. There's people who arrive late for their exams or who haven't studied. Uh, but again, it's a, f- a feeling of doubt, of not being prepared, uh, of being taken aback. And when your brain is looking, what have I experienced in the past that is similar? That's a good theme. And so themes of flying, themes of being chased, being out of control, the examination dreams. I think there's, there's these overarching themes, just like we see in plays and in novels and so on. There's, you know, the good guy, bad guy, you know, the, the falling in love. I mean, again, there's these overarching themes that tend to characterize um, all kinds of artworks. Um, and all kinds of narrative productions, like I said, whether it's a play or a novel and so on, movies. And I think it also, because it's based on our language and our conception of the world, uh, it also permeates in our dreams.
0: So that actually segues perfectly into my next question, uh, which is a question I've had since I've, since I've been reading your book. I'm, so my background is literature and reading uh, your book where you actually mention how important narratives are in, in, in dreams and how, how narratives are, in, are intertwined with emotions, right? So you need these two elements for actually, for the dream to actually sort of being processed by the brain and help you learn something, if, if I sort yep. of get this straight. All right. So I was reading it and I was like, hmm, uh, because it's always a big question in literature, are, are dreams the origin of narratives? Are they the first first narratives that we've had?
1: Some people have argued that, uh, indeed, the first stories are through dreams um, and not the the other way around. Uh, And that really, um, some people even argue that all of artwork is directly or indirectly derived from people's dreams. Now, we do know that the first written the first even oral stories that we have and the first written stories like the epic of gilgamesh dreams play a a profoundly important role when we look at the establishment of all the major religions dreams in each and every one of them play an important role Uh, when we look at the original conception of the universe of is there life after death you know of god dreams play a huge role so Dreams are intimately tied historically with the origins of storytelling. Some people believe that sharing dreams probably has an important or had an important social function. So that might be independent of its biological function, um, but there's many wonderful things people have done by using the dreams that they recall and sharing them with their families or in societies or with shamans and so on so there's these rich traditions but to come back to your question there is at least um, some suggestion that many even of the myths and legends that we've been telling each other across time and places uh, have maybe as their origins these common dream themes that we all have these chase and dreams these falling dreams and so on that that People have reported ever since there's recorded histories.
2: So that leads nicely into my question because I think that at least establishes that there's a very good chance that dreams are something maybe innately human that connect us all, or at least extremely important to our creative creations. And so you know that I'm fascinated with this notion of manipulating dreams. And when you told the story about The divorced women that fared better mentally after a year if they were able to have nice dreams about their ex, is that something? Like, is that something that we can manipulate? And is that something you think is okay to manipulate? And can you maybe just tell us where we stand currently with our ability to control our dreams? And if you like, how you feel about this?
1: (laughs) Well, that's a uh, that's a whole excellent series of questions. So, um. First, the the study with the depressed uh, women undergoing divorce, uh, they weren't necessarily positive dreams, but they were dreams where they actively incorporated their ex-spouse. So some of them did have negative uh, emotions, but I think it's their incorporation sort of reflected their working through these circumstances. Um, In terms of manipulation or controlling dreams, I think that's that's quite tricky dreams are quite impervious to external manipulations that is when people are in REM sleep you know researchers have tried to expose them to films to uh, show them you know to present them auditory stimuli heating stimuli pain and sometimes they get incorporated into the dream sometimes not but the dream seems to have sort of a mind of its own now that doesn't mean we can't manipulate it. Um, one of the easiest dream-related phases to manipulate is what are known as hypnagogic dreams, dream images that we have as we are falling asleep. And so, uh, many people who are interested in dreams and creativity, um, novelness in dreams, use this hypnagogic period to sort of to access this novel, creative parts of themselves uh, by trying to recall the dreams or the images they experience as they're falling asleep. And those are quite, you can manipulate through sounds, uh, through tape recordings, through music. Now, the controlling the dream uh, is very popular to the extent that it's related to a phenomenon known as lucid dreaming. And people often say, oh, if you learn to have lucid dreams, you can control your dreams and I think that's a, a, a misnomer and also an oversimplification. I mentioned before that you might be able to make uh, a dream character appear in your dream, but you will have very little control over what they will say, do um, uh, in response to what you do, whether they'll get up and leave, whatever. So those things are outside of your control. Then dreams are filled with details that you don't consciously choose and so you might have a lucid dream and you go oh this is boring I'm in this building I'd rather be on a beach Mm -hmm. um, or I'd rather be at this outdoor cafe and you sort of you know create this cafe and there you are outside outdoor cafe in Paris but you could ask yourself a bunch of questions how many people are around you what do they look like is the sky clear or cloudy is there traffic in the street what clothes are you wearing you know what's in what's in what's the waiter or waitress like you know what's in your uh, what's in your plate there's all these things that if you stop and look in the dream will have been determined but not by you they're they're already there so your brain even in lucid dream does a lot of this online creating of things that you have very little awareness of let alone control of the other thing with even in lucid dreams is that It's one thing to become aware that you're dreaming. It's quite another to keep that awareness going. And so it's not unusual for people to realize that they're dreaming, but then in the course of the dream to forget or to have faulty reasoning. So I, when I was writing my thesis, I had a dream where I dreamt of Carl Jung. It was a lucid dream. And Carl Jung was started telling me all these wonderful things that I should include in my thesis, and he was even making these elaborate diagrams of the psyche and so on. I was like, I'm not going to be able to remember all of this when I wake up. So I was aware that I was dreaming, uh, but what was my solution? I was, I decided I would take notes. All right, so I'm going to take notes, and I thought I was being so clever. I woke up, you know, with no notes, of course, because the notes were left in the dream world. And so you can, you can, again, you know, lucidity isn't black and white. There's sort of degrees of cognitive skills that come, come online, if you want. And we know that parts of your brain, your prefrontal cortex tends to be deactivated, especially during REM sleep, which probably explains why you don't have good reasoning, good judgment, critical thinking, sustained attention. Uh, but these things might come online in dreams. But it still leaves a lot of room for things that are outside of your <coughs> control. So I, I think that the whole control your dreams part is maybe oversimplified and overblown. I think it's a lot trickier and harder than many people make it out to be. And you ask the question about, is it a good thing? Um, and I'm not sure it really is. Again, with lucid dreaming, you 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 know even really good lucid dreamers might be able to do this a few times per week, or even you know at extreme cases like once per night. But you spend probably an hour and a half, two hours in REM sleep every night. So if you spend five minutes of that in a lucid dream, you're not really altering much. What worries me more is development of technologies that aim to instill these abilities throughout the night so really changing the overall architecture of your sleep and your dreaming brain Um, and i think this is probably much more dangerous to the extent that we may be interfering with a process which is not meant to be controlled that trying to steer where and how dreams unfold by its very nature, interferes with how they are naturally meant to, uh, to unfold and what memories get, get selected and how they are used. And, and so you, you're really undoing something or keeping the brain from doing something that is really vital and important.
0: So I think it uh, sort of, uh, well, it brings, it brings us to your latest article about uh, the marketing, uh, the hacking of, of dreams by marketers. And also about the, these things that we've discussed earlier offline about the sort of the next, the ultimate frontier right now, which is the sort of the uh, not the brain-blood frontier, but more the brain in, internal external world frontier, right? So yeah. our ultimate private thoughts are still our private thoughts; they're not shared, they're hardly shareable. Also, <laughs> they're hard to explain. But neurotechnologies, uh, hacking of dreams—I mean, there's a lot of research into this. So. What's sort of the, what is the landscape and what uh, worries you? And also, what do you see as positive developments of all this? Well, there are many interesting
1: technologies being developed um, in the field of what is known as dream engineering, which are attempts of using technology to alter the way people dream or what they dream about. Now, this can have many great applications. Um, to treat nightmares, for instance, trauma-related nightmares, to foster creativity. Um, it can be used by artists, composers, what have you. Uh, so there's, there's many interesting uh, venues for this to be used. However, we also know that many companies are actively working on methods of trying to um, Induce certain types of dreams in people or thoughts during their dreams or associations to influence their behaviors, their consumer behaviors. And I think that is just a matter of time before the technology catches up or is made possible by neuroscience discoveries on sleep and dreams, uh, where these things get. Um, more and more commonly used or pushed upon people who aren't quite sure what exactly they are agreeing to by having these things manipulated. The thing about sleep and dreams is that you can be completely amnesic for what occurred during the night. That is, have no memory of it, and yet find your behavior uh, influence. And I'll just give one example of this. A few years ago, there was a study... Uh, done on uh, smokers and they didn't know they were selected because they were smokers Um, but what they were told is that the researchers were interested in studying the impact of smells on people's sleep and so they tell them you're gonna you're gonna be sleeping with these tubes in your nostrils and we may or may not uh, present you with smells during your sleep and in the morning we'll want to know how well you think you slept or not. Now, unbeknownst to them, during their sleep, uh, some of the smokers had a pairing of smells. They would simultaneously be exposed to the smell of either rotting fish or eggs and cigarette smoke. And these are very short exposures. We're talking maybe five, ten seconds in key phases of of their uh, sleep. Now, These smokers in the week that followed reduced their consumption of cigarettes by 30%. They had no memory of them being exposed to any of these smells. And so you can use these conditioning stimuli to impact their behavior. And what's fascinating is that you can do these olfactory stimuli pairing while they are awake. If you do it while they are awake, it has zero effect on them. So it's not just that you know you're conditioning you know uh, a smell of cigarettes or something that's that's really unpleasant. Is that again? It's the power of what sleep is doing with your memories, mm-hmm. and how it is reorganizing your uh, your your conception of the world and where your memories fit in. Where these kinds of manipulations become really powerful because you're tapping into processes that are not going on while you are awake so again you can do this pairing to people they have no memory of it they don't even know you ask them in the morning do where their smells they go no I slept fine and then you know you you ask them to keep these questionnaires including in there a key measure which is how many cigarettes they smoke a day and like I said on average their consumption goes down by 30 percent so here's an example of something you're exposed to in your sleep for which you have no memory but that influences your behavior. Uh, something was done very similar with presenting the names of brands, of people who either like more M&Ms or Skittles, and you can shift their preferences by presenting these uh, sounds in their sleep. So there's all these emerging technologies um, where I think that it will be possible for advertisers to try to influence consumer behavior through their sleep and dreams. And if you think of all the money invested for making ads that last 30 seconds, think if you have access to eight hours every night of a person's life. And to the extent that many people are already sleeping with electronic devices nearby that can monitor their sleep, and whether it's Alexa, I mean, each big company has them uh, ostensibly to monitor things like Um, snoring, or your breathing patterns, your heart rate patterns. So they're already collecting sleep-related information on you. uh, And maybe some of those channels are really useful for them to know. If I present this stimuli, here's what's happening to the heart rate, respiration rate, it's being processed, not processed. And so I think that in the very near future, companies will work this out. And in a a recent conference of uh, marketers in over 400 companies in uh, New York City earlier this year, over 70% of them said they were actively looking at or were interested in using these kinds of sleep and dream engineering techniques for marketing. So the appetite is there, um, and I think that technology will soon follow. And to me, that's potentially very worrisome.
0: Um, I being the uh, eternal optimist um, first of all I think if you were to ask most industries even the non-for-profit you know if you could tap into dreams I think most people say they might be interested to enhance whatever they're trying to you know get you to do but would I be curious if it were done for pedagogical purposes maybe if it allowed me to enhance my students learning I'm not saying I would do it uh, secretly but imagine educators saying okay we've got this population that has all sorts of different issues for different reasons would you use the technology if they could allow you to enhance learning maybe
1: um, very likely I think we're, we use technology for anything in our lives that we think or some people believe correctly or not that might give them an edge on something. Uh, To the extent that we're now learning all the fabulous things sleep does Mm -hmm. uh, and the important things, then yeah, you might very well be interested in technologies that will maximize how well you retain information, how well you learn things, Uh, how fast you can learn to play a new piece of music if you're a piano player or how to
0: deal with your depression
1: or how to deal with your depression Um, there's all kinds of possibilities Um, and and I think that's that's potentially um, exciting and good but like I said I'm, I'm just not sure to what extent people uh, are aware of what they're getting into and the possible risks that are associated. But of course, if you were to ask me, look, you can uh, you know play this cassette for 20 minutes before you go to bed and I'll have a Superman dream where I'm Superman or Batman, and or you might want that for your kids, but I think a lot of adults would love to have these kind of adventure dreams once in a blue moon. <laughs> I think a lot of people would be interested and, and I think that potentially is relatively harmless i would say i don't know but it would definitely be of interest but it'd be not something you're doing multiple hours every night but i think others might be addicted to this um you know dreams are can be exceedingly vivid realistic and so to the extent that people get caught up in video games and alternate worlds or the growing interest in the metaverse uh, to me dreams are the ultimate embodiment of these pursuits and uh, maybe if these technologies get well-developed and are effective enough, uh, maybe people don't want to wake up, right? Maybe they're happy, uh, like in player number one, they're happy in their virtual worlds. And uh, they are much better off there, as far as they are concerned, in terms of their adventures and well-being, than what awaits for them in waking life. So this is a more dystopian view, uh, but I think all of these options are um we can at least foresee their possibilities
0: so this is a sort of uh, nice, uh, a nice a uh, nice conclusion so we are what we sleep
1: we are what we sleep and you dream therefore you are
0: okay that's very good <laughs> thank you so much Antonio that was amazing
1: thank you for having me
0: thank you. and thank you Anita Zal and, and Darius and also on behalf of Viola, who had who had to leave us leave the, the podcast a bit early That was fantastic, thank you so much, Uh, I hope we'll do it again.